a little while ago, back when things were a lot cheaper, a little boy walked into a diner and sat at a little table. A waitress came to him, uh, placed a, a glass of water on the table and asked what she could help him with. He asked how much an ice cream sundae would be. And the waitress told him it would be 50 cents. So this is why it's a long time ago. When's the last time you had an ice cream sundae for 50 cents? Little boy pulled out from his pocket a bunch of coins and loose items as little kids have and put it on a table and examined it and tried to count how much he had. And then he asked how much just for a scoop of vanilla ice cream. Some people were beginning to line up at the hostess table now and the waitress was becoming a little impatient as she was responsible for many things that day. And she told him impatiently, a little annoyed, that it would be 35 cents. The little boy again counted his coins and said, no, I'll have the vanilla ice cream. The waitress bought back the vanilla ice cream, set down the bill with that, and went on to take care of the other tables she was responsible for. The boy joyfully ate his ice cream, paid the cashier, and left. As the waitress came back to his table to clear the table, she paused and was a little surprised to the point where she welled up a little bit at what she saw because what she saw next to this empty dish of ice cream was 15 cents. A very generous tip for a 50 cent ice cream. Generosity is at the heart of God. You can think of God as this ultimate host of creation. And humanity and all of creation are his guests in this amazing world of opportunity and abundance. And humanity is given this charge to spread this generosity everywhere. That's what it says in being fruitful and multiplying, bringing God's glory to the end of the earth. That is all about extending his generosity. But obviously, because of Genesis 3, our experience of sin through Adam and Eve and all of our experiences, we don't experience that kind of world with abundant generosity as our regular experience. We now live in a world marred by the, the lies and experience of scarcity and struggle. And as you see throughout Scripture, even as we are trying to follow Jesus, we know the main problem ultimately isn't a lack of resources. It's a mindset. It's a heart that does not trust God. Believing that somehow God is holding out on us. That there really isn't enough. And because of that, we have to take matters into our own hands. And that leads us to all kinds of things like greed, evil, envy. All those things stem from this belief and a lie that God is not abundant as a giver. Jesus knew as he came to earth, this lie needed to be defeated. That's what he was doing throughout his entire life. Think about all the miracles he did were a demonstration of God's abundant generosity. The very first miracle that he performed, at least we have written in public, was to provide abundant wine for a party because God is a gracious, abundant host. You see that ultimately in his giving of his life as an expression of love, that God can turn death back into life. He can redeem what we experience as scarcity back to abundance. And as followers of Jesus, since Jesus' time and until now in our time, we are called to live in that truth again. The kingdom of God, living in his generous economy. When we believe that the Lord Jesus gave us everything to the point of death, even on the cross, 
That's an invitation for us to live as citizens in this abundant kingdom, generous, overflowing with our life, in all of who we are, our talents, our time, all of our treasures. What we're looking at in 2 Corinthians now is a section where Paul begins to unpack this incredible theology and experience and story of generosity. Paul was a missionary church planter. He went from city to city, planting churches. He was teaching them, writing letters back to them, sharing the gospel, preaching, both in synagogues and in the marketplace. But a crucial part of Paul's missionary journey, we tend to not give a lot of attention to, but he spends a lot of time on, was raising money. A significant part of his practical ministry. He spent over 10 years working on the collection for the church back in Jerusalem. We read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And what I want to do is look at this somewhat practical conversation that he's having with the Corinthians to unpack the theology of God's gracious economy. Because if we look at how God looks at our money, then it reshapes how we are to live with the things that he gives to us. And that's what we need in order to be his people living out in his kingdom, operating with his economy in our lives. Grace redefines our way of using our lives, our resources, our time. And I want to look at each one of these verses. Uh, We're going to go a little slower than we typically do with sections like this. We're going to look at chapters 8 and 9 a little more intentionally to kind of get into this theology of generosity and a gracious economy we live in. I'm going to look at today each one of these seven verses and kind of draw out some truths for us along the way. And I pray that God would use these truths to reshape those of us who are in Christ. Because if we're honest, we, we often believe, I often believe the lies that are around us when it comes to looking at this world and what God has provided. Verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Paul is using the word grace there, but what he's talking about is money. He refers to money regularly throughout this section as grace or favor in English. That's the same word in Greek. It means grace, something unmerited, a gift Because he's trying to remind us it ultimately comes from God. It's obviously given by the churches, but it's giving us a framework to think about our resources, our money. And it's a theological one. We need, as Paul is trying to teach them, a theological framework for money. Because what we tend to, and it makes sense, all of us tend to live in a world where money is primarily a transactional framework. That's how we mainly use money. You pay $10 and maybe you get a sandwich today. Not even some places. You pay $20, maybe you'll get a salad downtown, right? So that's, it's that insane. Some of you are laughing. You pay $20 for a salad downtown. Or you pay $8, you barely get a boba. I mean, that's how insane boba is these days. And every time my kids want boba, I'm like, no, I'm not going to buy you $8 boba. You spend $2,000, maybe you go to Disneyland. Maybe two days, not even sometimes, depending on where you're staying and how much money you spend, if you build a lightsaber, all that kind of stuff, right? It's, just, it's insane. But that's how we experience money on a regular everyday basis. It's transactional. 
The problem, and there's nothing wrong inherently with how we are using that as a transaction in our everyday experience. The problem is when we let that view, that framework of money, define how we relate to God and his kingdom. The problem is when we impose that approach to our relationship with God. And so sometimes we do this. We never say it out loud, but many of us operate in this kind of relationship to God. I'll do this, God, if you do these things. I'll show up to church if you give me these things I want. We, no one ever is so crass to say it that way, but we sometimes relate to God that way. I'll read the Bible if you get these things done that I need in my life. I'll give to the church and give to missions if you get me that job. We relate to God in a transactional way at times. I remember as a little kid and I was caught in a sin and I remember trying to pay back God for that sin. So I, I remember I, I stole some uh, baseball cards and so I went to that grocery store and I laid down the cost of that uh, you know, baseball cards just on the same place I stole it. Like, see God, I made this right. I didn't just... I didn't have the mindset to realize I should probably actually go back and admit and pay for those things, but I just left random dollars around where I stole it. And we do that, right? God, see, now I'm, I'm good now. A quid pro quo kind of relationship. Expecting God to do his part. In fact, sometimes people who preach a false prosperity gospel even communicate that way. If you give to God, then he'll bless you 20 times afterwards. That's a transactional way of relating to God. We sometimes bargain with God. I'll, I'll do these things for you, God, if you give me all my dreams. That's a good deal, right? But Paul, in this very, we kind of miss it when you just read it, about the grace of God that has been given. He calls money grace. Because in a kingdom economy, the biblical view of money is not a transaction. It's a gift. A transactional approach always says, you give these things, you get these things. But in God's economy, grace says, even if you've done nothing for me, I'll do everything for you. Even though you forget me, I will never forget you. Even though you've given up on me, I won't give up on you. Grace is an undeserved gift. You don't work for God's love. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. And yet he gives us his son. He's that gracious. Apart from God, we're spiritually bankrupt. And yet God is gracious in his giving to us. So many blessings, all grace. And so our response to God in his kingdom economy is also then grace. Because he is infinitely generous, we now believe we never will have lack. We can be generous with the things we have, more and more generous. That's why he calls it grace, to give us that framework. When we relate to God and his things in this world when it comes to money, we don't primarily relate as the world relates as a transaction. We relate out of grace. We've received everything. And that is the only way that Christians can begin to operate with their resources in a way that's reflective of a kingdom citizen. Verse 2. So the first truth you see there is it's, not transactional primarily. It's grace, a gift. Verse 2, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. The background on this group of people, the Macedonians, it's a, it's a region, includes Thessalonica, it includes Philippi. These are also 
uh, places that Paul wrote letters. So we have Thessalonians, we have Philippians. The Macedonians, in fact, most of the ancient world was extremely poor. If people study the socioeconomic status of the ancient Near East in Jesus' time, they, they generally have an understanding of the way that people were socioeconomically, and 73% of people lived at or below basic living. Only 5% of the world were actually wealthy. And then the rest, about 22%, were kind of in this relatively poor status. We are incredibly wealthy by any standard to any place and any time in history. They were incredibly poor, these Macedonians who were giving grace, their money. In fact, if you look at the socioeconomics of their time, there is no such thing as a middle class. There's a very few people who are wealthy and majority, almost everyone else was poor. Macedonians were in that 73% that were at or below basic living. But it says here, look at verse 2 carefully. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. So it's like joy plus poverty equals a wealth of generosity. If you're taking that, that sentence, verse 2, into a math equation, that's what it would mean. Abundance of joy plus extreme poverty equals a wealth of generosity. I read that, I'm like, that math does not add. I mean, you've seen this before, right? You know people who are living at poverty, and maybe they have an extreme joy, but you expect abundance of joy plus poverty equals happy poor people. That's what my math would actually equate. But how does it equal then a wealth of generosity? How does that happen? Here's our problem with our math. We tend to think of generosity as giving out a surplus. But the Bible always explains generosity is not an amount. It's not surplus. It's always sacrifice. The biblical truth about generosity is it's not even about amount. It's not about giving out of your surplus as most of us tend to think about giving it's out of sacrifice. He continues to explain it in verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify. So they gave basically so that they could continue to live. But then they gave beyond their means. So they sacrificed. They had to give something up of their own accord. They were willing to give up. They were already in the at or below living standards. And they're willing to sacrifice from that point to continue to bless the work of God in the lives of the Jerusalem church. Church, you know what this means? What holds people back in the kingdom economy of God from generosity, what holds us back from generosity is not a lack of wealth. It's a lack of willingness to sacrifice. It always is that. And I don't say that to shame us about that. That's just facts when it comes to scriptural truth. There's a lack of generosity in the kingdom of God. It's not because we're not wealthy. It's because we are willing to sacrifice because this was abundance of joy and extreme poverty equals incredible wealth of generosity. Here's, here's the thing, right? Generosity sounds great. <laughs> I want to help people. You hear about opportunities to give. Like you heard last night, if you went to the Zimbageti, there's opportunities to continue to give to support our work in Zambia. And it, it's great. You hear that and it hits you and you hear testimony, it hits your hearts. And then when you, your desires to give then hit against the conflict of the things you want or the things you need to pay for in your life. 
And this is a question I wrestle with my own heart this past week. Because this is, when I'm, when I'm preaching this, this is something I need to significantly grow in. As someone who is also wealthy living in San Francisco. Does my, does your generosity require you to give up things you'd like to do? And often mine doesn't. Which means I'm not generous. As much as I'd like to think I am. Because I often think of my giving out of surplus. Whereas you see throughout scriptures again and again, especially here, giving is out of sacrifice. As I look at my life, most of it's giving out of surplus. But is it cost me something where I'm willing to count the things that God has given to me and give to the point where there's actually sacrifice? Again, if you look at Paul's writing throughout all of chapters 8 and 9, he never gives an amount. He doesn't even actually command them to give because ultimately it's about the heart. We'll come back to this, this idea, but Paul says nothing about amounts, but he tries to get them to see through the Macedonians, you can have this weird kingdom math where an abundance of joy and extreme poverty equals a wealth of generosity because the problem is never the amount we have. The problem is always an unwillingness in our hearts to sacrifice. Because generosity is based on sacrifice, not surplus. We look at verse 4, continue on. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Paul never forced the Macedonians to give. They were begging Paul. Here's another truth. We don't have to give. We get to give. Giving is not this necessary evil because we just have to pay bills or make budgets in the church. It's a privilege. It's a joyful freedom in the kingdom of God. He translates in verse 4, favor. That's the same word as grace. Constantly throughout this passage, it's a grace. It's a, a joy. It's something amazing to be able to join in what God is doing to provide. If you read the New Testament carefully, there is no system that actually is replacing the the tithing system. You never see, actually, they do practice because they're faithful Jews, tithes and offering. The reason we just generally call it offering in our churches, there's no tithe. Because tithe literally means tenth. There's no amount given because God wants your heart. And from your heart, then it overflows with generosity and sacrifice. Grace transforms all of this from duty to joy. I've been a part of a, a nonprofit that helps um, equip and train church planters. And also we have an arm of our organization that also funds church planters. We have a, a very wealthy uh, Silicon Valley donor and we get to steward millions of dollars towards church planting in the Bay Area. And then one of my favorite things to do every single year is when we sit down and review church planters from the Bay Area and we get to kind of be like Santa Claus and get to be generous. Like that, that to me is one of the most amazing things ever is to be able to bless financially the church planters that are there. And that, that, that's stewarding someone, that's being a role where it's not my resources entirely there, but still experiencing the, the joy of giving from that. I'm like, this is amazing. And the places where I get to give. So um, those of you who were thinking and praying for me last week, thank you for praying for me as I was running the SF Marathon last week. Um, it was hard. If you want to run, run a marathon, I, I would not recommend SF as your first one. 
Although I did convince our board member, Eric, to run his first one in SF, and he did amazing last week. Um, but I, I love running. I love what God is doing around the world. And I, 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 I know someone who works for World Vision, and she coordinates some of the, the running events that they do to raise money for different uh, projects. One of the main ones they have is raising uh, funds to help uh, provide clean water in various parts of the world where they don't. And I got a chance to give to her run. Uh, she's not a runner. Um, she hates running. And she's running the Chicago Marathon later this year. And like this, this joy of giving. To, uh, she actually texted me back because she was like, after she received it, she was like, did you add an extra zero by accident? I'm like, no, that this, I want, first of all, there's running there. There's a joy in me encouraging you. But like, there's a joy in me seeing you experience this. There's, there's a joy in that. Now, I share that not because I want you to pay attention to my giving, but there is joy as you find it flows out of what you get to do in God's kingdom. The, Paul is saying they, they begged, they gave it. This is an opportunity to share. It's a beautiful thing to participate. And you see, see, look at that. See, the begging is for the favor of taking part. Here's the joy. You get to participate. Giving is one way, this is another truth, to participate in God's work. Think about the Macedonians' context. They cannot, they're 800 miles away from Corinth. They cannot on a regular basis interact with the, the church there in Corinth. They cannot regularly interact with the church in Jerusalem. But they're taking part of God's work. The Jerusalem church is now hurting and they're giving and they're participating in the renewal of ministry back where the early church began. And that's amazing. Think about how many barriers they had to cross. They're Gentiles giving back to Jewish people at the start of the church. Think about the joy that they would have in participating in God's work. And that still exists for us today. Think about the church. Do you want to be a part of helping people meet Jesus and having their lives changed by the gospel? Do you want to help people connect in the community like we just shared earlier about community groups? Do you want to help people reached and cared for in Zambia? Or do you want to help people, children who are lost and escaping conflict in the Congo that we just gave to? Do you want to be a part of reaching children in our neighborhood through Camp Tunes? Do you want to be part of going forth to India, to Hong Kong, to East Asia and Taiwan? When you give to the church, you're participating in those things. That's one way that we participate because you're not going to participate in everything that God is doing in and through a local church, but giving to the local church and giving to things that God is doing begins to connect you to that participation. And it's not just giving. We do hope that God will lead you to find actual giving of yourself to that ministry physically, regularly. But giving is a major way in which the church participates in what God is doing. We see Continuing on in verse 5, another truth. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. This is an important truth. If you hear any one of them, I think this is one I, I pray you would remember. Giving is ultimately an act of worship. Giving is not primarily to meet needs, to reach budgets. Giving is deeply spiritual deeply spiritual. 
This is why you find, even in other religions on the road, why this practice of almsgiving and giving is so crucial to their things. Because as image bearers of God, we recognize as we practice this discipline and sacrifice of giving, we are actually getting closer to the heart of God who is incredibly generous with creation. It is a deeply spiritual act. Giving is a part of worship. Worship, that word itself. We don't ever usually think about where it comes from, but it comes from an older English word, worship, which means attaching value to something. And when you attach value to something, you're saying it stands in a certain way. So worship is ultimately saying this is most valuable. And when we give, it's a deeply spiritual act because we're saying, we're surrendering to God. We are saying in this act, you are worthy of everything, more than anything else in my life, because we know that you are deeply generous. And notice, it's not just about money here. Again, he never says anything about mountains. He says they gave themselves. They gave them themselves. Giving is a a deeply spiritual act because it's, it's a sign of your giving of yourself. Those of you who had the joy of sacrificially giving to someone who is in need, you know it wasn't just resources. And that, that relationship is connected there because you're giving a part of who you are to support someone else's need. And the reason that we see that they gave themselves here is because ultimately God is not after our money because he's short on funds. He made everything out of nothing. He wants you, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. He wants all of your emotions. He wants your vocation. He wants your talents. He wants your sexuality. And yes, he wants you to worship him with his finances. Finances ultimately isn't the ultimate point. The greatest offering that God wants is you and giving resources is a part in the reflection of giving yourself to God. I'll say this very clearly. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we don't want your money. We don't. Because God doesn't really want your money. He wants you. He wants your heart. And so I know that's sometimes a barrier. And even if you happen to be visiting our church for the very first time and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you happen to come and your doubt was like, oh my gosh, all the churches, all they want is money. You come on one Sunday, I'm talking about money. I'm sorry. It just hap- that, that's God's sovereignty today. We don't often talk about money regularly, but this we're going through 2 Corinthians and this is where we are. But God, if that's where you are. Don't, we, we don't want your money if you're not yet a follower of Jesus. We, we, we want you to see this God wants you. And those of us who are followers of Jesus, he ultimately doesn't want your money either. He wants you. And your giving is a reflection of saying, God, you do have me. You do have me. He wants you. God loves you. He doesn't need our stuff. He made everything and he's given us everything. He's given us an inheritance that is infinitely rich forever. And our living and our giving reflects whether we believe that or not. That's why it's a constant struggle in our lives. Verse 6, this ongoing, this truth we see here in verse 6. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, he should complete among you this act of grace. Here's what happened. He sent Titus there. Apparently, they stopped giving. And I think this is so reflective of all of us, isn't it? We get really excited and we make pledges or we start and we don't follow through. So most of us, our generosity is sporadic. It's based upon a good feeling, a felt need. 
And that's not all bad. We should give in response to how God moves in our, in our spirit and our feelings at times. But what's better is this intentional, disciplined generosity. Not a one-time act. Ongoing spiritual worship. Here, here, here's one of the sad truths I was talking with some of our pastors this past week. I realized about my own heart. And maybe it's true of all of us. I'm more consistent giving to Amazon Prime than I am to the mission of the church. I'm more consistent with my giving to Netflix. And consistency matters. It matters in giving, not because God needs it, not because ultimately even the church needs it, because we do. Giving is a formative practice of worship. A formative practice is something you do again and again, and eventually it shapes your character. Because we learn by repetition. And we need this because by default, my sinful heart is incredibly greedy. It is. I think of myself before others. Think about how all of us initially reacted March 17th, 2020, as we saw grocery aisles emptied. What did we do in our hearts? I better go there and get something for myself and my family. Because I don't want to be the one person who does not have. My heart is deeply greedy. So why do we need to practice giving? Because we live with this gracious God and we want to say, we believe in this. We need this. Giving is hard for us. We use everything on ourselves. And we struggle with this. Sometimes we give and we expect this kind of amazing spiritual experience. And sometimes it's not. You don't experience it, a very amazing high from that giving. But we give and we give consistently because as we do that, it begins to shape our heart. It begins to chip away at greed. It makes our heart eventually more generous. We need that rhythm to become more generous. We're learning actually and relearning, I would say, how to incorporate this practice and time for that in our church. Um, for many years, we would have an offering part of our church, but during COVID, one of the things I realized was that this became rote and it became unpurposeful. It's just something we do. Um, and then actually one of the struggles I have, I'm just being honest, is like I struggle with how to bring it in because I don't want to just do it. Because I also know it's a skepticism that a lot of non-Christians have. I don't want to just be that person asking for money. I don't. Because I, I believe we don't need it. God will give us exactly what we need for what he wants us to do. And we will respond joyfully in generosity what he gives us. But we also, I realize now as I'm being reconvicted with this passage, is we need to work in that rhythm into our church. I'm going to end this sermon in a little bit and then give us one of the prayers I've been kind of mulling over. I hope begins to shape us as a people. But we need that time. We need that space in our rhythms as a church, as a people, because that time, that intentionality will begin to reshape our hearts, push back against the greediness that exists in my heart. Last truth, last verse two. Look at verse seven. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Again, he calls giving and money grace. But notice he puts that excelling in this act of grace, this act of giving, in the midst of faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness, 
he he places that act in the midst of all those other acts because he what he wants us to see is that giving and money really is a fundamental part of discipleship. Because we tend to think of discipleship from an overly spiritualized category in a, in a not, not a biblical category, but a compartmentalized category. Well, Jesus fits into this category, which is Bible reading and church attendance. But money is what I need to do. No, by connecting all these things, he's saying, no, Jesus is Lord over all of our lives. Part of growing as a disciple is learning how to surrender and use our resources to live as kingdom citizens following him. We, we tend to think of discipleship as this spiritual category and in all this secular categories, we just, well, I learned about money from, you know, the podcast I listened to or this book. No, scripture says a lot about money. Money is a matter. Giving is a matter of following Jesus. As we want to grow as gospel-transformed disciples, one area as a church we need to grow in is understanding how to live in God's gracious economy. Discipleship, following Jesus, if that is what we are saying is our life includes this area of our money, how we spend, how we receive, how we save, how we give to the next generation, all of that. We need to shift away from this thinking of money where it's just about more. Even when I sing, giving these like kind of like these next few messages about this, it's not ultimately about just more. It's really a shift of categories, right? We tend to think of money as secular, just transactional, detached from our faith in Jesus. But look at, if you see Jesus interact and giving parables again and again, teaching his disciples how much it's centered on grace, spiritual, and what fundamental to following Jesus. Jesus talks about money and possessions thousands of times in his earthly life. He talks more about money than heaven and hell combined. So fundamental to what it means to follow Jesus is how we frame in our minds, in our hearts, in our actions about money. Giving is an indicator of spiritual health. Now, that's not always the case. It's not absolute. I know people sometimes, I know people who, who give just to get God off their backs. They just give because, well, I've done my thing now. It's my duty. And I, I don't, they don't really love the Lord and anything else, but they're faithful in their duty to give. But scripture often, Jesus regularly talks about money as an indicator of the heart. It's a measure of spiritual health. If there is no giving, I would say it's kind of like on a car with their check engine light. Actually, stats show uh, as recent as 2022, that 37% of regular church givers or church goers never give. Across the United States, 37% of regular church attenders who say they follow and love Jesus never give anything, not a single thing. And that's not ultimately the problem. But if the check engine light, it's a deeper problem, actually. Some of those problems are things we need to address. Maybe there's a deep distrust of leadership. I want you to know, if you've attended our members' meetings, you know this too. Our books are 100% open. We don't hide anything from our church. And so maybe there are questions, maybe you've been a part of church that hid money or you saw this incredible, lavish extravagance that was somewhat questionable. If there's a deep distrust, we, we want to have conversations. And we need to wrestle with that. 
There are certainly leaders who have abused their authority when it comes to finances. But my, my ask of you, if you're trying to follow Jesus in all of your life and that's your barrier, would you not just kind of end it there? Would you press in, ask questions? Would, would you lean into that and, and, and not just stop and say, well, I can never trust and I'm never going to give that. No, I, I would say that's, that's a check engine light problem. The deeper issue is maybe a lack of commitment, right? Maybe they, you have this consumption view which exists in our culture where it's come to get. What did I get out of today? No, but disciples, followers of Jesus receive, yes, but we also contribute. Some of you do have wounds and that's held you back from this area of your life. And I pray as we're looking at this that there is sensitivity to those wounds and we want to walk with you through some of those wounds, maybe when it comes to resources. But throughout scriptures, we see again and again, money is a matter of discipleship. It is a fundamental part of what it means to follow Jesus. When, when Paul is talking about following Jesus throughout this letter, he doesn't have a, 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 a subtitle here saying, now I'm going to get very practical and talk about money. No, it's all connected. And learning how to deal with finances is a very fundamental part. It's a, it's a, a symptom of our hearts. You can look at it that way of where we are with Jesus. Not the only thing, but a significant thing. We're going to look the next few weeks at this topic. I didn't get into all of what I wanted to say, but I pray that that lays some foundational things. It is a fundamental part of discipleship. It's, it's a framework of grace. It's, generosity is really not all the surplus. It's about sacrifice. And we see that in Christ. I pray it begins to reshape us as we want to follow Jesus with our whole lives. You know, the Bible says our sin, and you notice this amazingly, God is using very practical language that we can grasp. And often our relationship to God does have economic language to it. Our sin leaves us with an insurmountable debt that we can never repay. This debt is there, and yet God does something to remove the debt. And we know that to be giving of his son to cover our debt, to stand in our place, to die the debt of sin that we die, deserve to die. But also, notice in the gospel, he doesn't just pay the debt and say, well, you get a fresh start. Work really hard now and see if you can make it into the kingdom of heaven. He pays our debt and then he gives us an inheritance that is sealed for us, guaranteed by the work of Jesus for eternity. So we are living as his kingdom citizens with an infinite riches forever. And if we lean into that truth more and more as we follow Jesus, think about how that begins to reshape our interactions with the world, with our church, with the things that God are doing. I believe one of the biggest struggles we have is not ultimately because we lack resources. It's because we don't see God as generous. And that begins to then limit, not because of God is limiting us. We begin to limit ourselves because we're not seeing the heart of God for us. He dies on the cross. He pays our debt. He gives us infinite riches. And we are people because we have received abundantly, can give of ourselves abundantly. Imagine what it would look like 
if the Christians in San Francisco, as we, we think about all the, the difficulties, the struggles, the complaints that are happening, and there, there's not like a, a tremendous amount of Christians in San Francisco professing Christians, but there's a significant amount. But what if the Spirit of God moved all of us who are living in the Bay Area, San Francisco, to be generous with our whole lives, with our whole self? We give to God our occupations. We give to God our houses. We give to God our relationships. We give to God everything we have because we recognize all of that wasn't because I earned it. It was grace. And I get to give this back in worship to God. What would happen to San Francisco if the Christians who lived in our city lived with the truth that God is infinitely generous and not the lie that we will never have enough? I pray that the Spirit of God continues to move in that way in our city, in our hearts, in my heart more and more. I'm going to end um, having a, you reflect on this prayer written by uh, a Methodist minister a number of years ago. And I just, I'll read it out loud for us and I'll let you kind of reflect on it, let it sit in your hearts, and, and then I'll, we'll respond uh, in a moment of worship as well. But this may be worked into some of our rhythms of shaping our hearts when it comes to offering ourselves to the Lord. I like this prayer. It says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. We bring nothing into this world and we take nothing out of it. We who call Lord Jesus Lord devote ourselves to resisting greed, which plunges the human heart into ruin and pierces it with many griefs. We are determined to practice generosity with free hearts, fixing our hope on God and not on the uncertainty of wealth. We desire to be rich in good deeds and willing to share all that we have, lay up for ourselves treasures that will not decay, but will shine in the age to come. So let it be with us. Amen. Would you take a moment? The next slide actually has the entire prayer there um, for you to kind of reflect upon. But would you, as you're willing and able to, Say that to yourself in your heart. Say that to yourself in a whisper. But would you do this with a, hand, a posture of open hands in your laps? Because this is a posture of, that does two things. It's receiving. Because we're saying from the, honestly, as before the Lord, everything I have is from you. But it's also a posture of giving. When you give, you have open hands, not clenched fists. And so, as you reflect on the, that prayer, would you receive from the Lord and the Spirit what he wants to say to you? And would you respond in an overflow of giving to the Lord what he calls you to give for his worship and his glory and for our good?